Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Richard Gebhardt to discuss his exciting book, Ships and Shipwrecks, Stories from the Great Lakes. Thanks for tuning in. From the day that French explorer Robert Cavalier de La Salle launched the Griffin in 1679 to the 1975 sinking of the celebrated Edmund Fitzgerald, thousands of commercial ships have sailed on the vast and perilous waters of the Great Lakes. In a harbinger of things to come, on the return leg of its first trip in the late summer of 1679, the Griffin disappeared and has never been seen again. Records from the centuries since show that an alarming number of shipwrecks have occurred on the Great Lakes. If vessels that wrecked but were later repaired and returned to service are included in the count, the number certainly swells into the thousands. Most did not mysteriously vanish like the Griffin, though. Instead, they suffered the occupational hazards of every lake boat. Collisions, groundings, strands, fires, boiler explosions, and capsizes. Many of these disasters took the lives of crews and passengers. The fearsome wrath of the storms that brew over the Great Lakes has challenged and defeated some of the staunchest vessels constructed in the shipyards of port cities along the U.S. and Canadian lakeshores. In Ships and Shipwrecks, Stories from the Great Lakes, my guest Richard Gebhard tells the tales of some of these ships and their captains and crews from their launches to their sad demises, or sometimes to their celebrated retirements. This volume is a must-read for anyone intrigued by the maritime history of the Great Lakes, and I'm so excited for the chance to talk with its author today. Richard Gebhardt was director of the White River Light Station Lighthouse Museum from 1975 to 1980. He's also authored numerous articles of historical interest and essays for journals and newsletters of Great Lakes Historical Societies. Richard, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, you're welcome. I appreciate you inviting me on, Kurt. One of the things that I find so interesting about your book, we see it in that introduction and in the preface to the book, you talk about the sort of vast extent of Great Lakes shipping. There's a tone there of discovery insofar as I think that the extent of that shipping and the number of ships involved is kind of unknown to the general public. Could you give us a sense of what shipping activity has been like on the Great Lakes? Sure. The, by and large, some of the, the main bulk commodities that we see still shipped on lakes today. By that, I mean like tachinite, iron ore pellets, coal movement, all that certainly is declining a little bit these days and certainly well more ahead. Grain movements are very, very strong. All these um, movements had date back to the well, 1870s and 1880s and then on through the turn into the 20th century where things were really booming and the burgeoning cities of Cleveland and Buffalo were growing exponentially larger. So these bulk commodities were always moved, but never to the point like they were at that time on the lakes. And the ships were getting larger and longer, and their numbers were were vast. When you say bulk commodities, you mentioned a couple like timber, taconite, the kinds of sort of heavy industrial product that we think about, you know, moving around. What were some of the other things? There's one great tale in the book uh, about a ship that ran aground with a load of corn. So there was all of this floating corn as the holds filled with water. What other kinds of things were being shipped? 
early on, of course, the, the lumber was one of the chief movement of, of goods, particularly on Lake Michigan cities in Wisconsin and Michigan. Uh, lumber was huge and helped build cities like Chicago, particularly. Every year annually, there were tens of millions of board sheets loaded out of places like Muskegon and Manistee, Michigan. And going back to, we're talking about the, the corn and the cargo of the California. Those early days also of passenger and packager freighters were, were also the, many things related to the food chain besides uh, the corn, there were bulk commodities, barrel products, everything that was from hams to pork to flour, salt, all those things were shipped at one time or other in those holds of those ships. And I suppose it's probably part of thinking about the truly immense size of the Great Lakes that we remember that this is an international shipping operation and not just international between the U.S. and Canada, but the Great Lakes had a portal out you know, to the Atlantic Ocean. Yeah, that's correct. The St. Lawrence River and the St. Lawrence Seaway out to the Gulf of St. Lawrence and into the Atlantic. We do touch on a couple of uh, vessel transits at that time in the early years and also right about the Welland Canal. And another interesting aspect of Great Lakes shipping is the, the Welland Canal, which connects Lakes Erie and Lake Ontario. And it's fascinating because it's not the length of which is roughly 25, 26 miles, but it does this. It raises vessels from 326 feet because of the Niagara Escarpment, which is like essentially the same geological feature that gives us Niagara Falls. The elevation of Lake, on Lake Erie is 326 feet higher than Lake Ontario. So ships then and today still have to climb this massive difference in, in the terrain and the topography of the, of the canal. So it's done through a series of locks, and it's pretty fascinating. It's changed over the years, but it's still that daunting task that ships have to climb. And it's going back to what you said, the international waters to make it necessary to transit the canals. It's a fascinating place to go. It sounds really interesting, and it's such a feat of engineering to imagine, you know, how do you take this ship that weighs, you know, several tons, many tons, and figure out how to raise it that many feet above sea level to move it from one lake into another? Now, I would say I'd posit it's probably one of the greatest engineering marvels in, in the world, I would think. That, because you know, that, that dead weight of tonnage, those, those vessels that it can raise can be up to length of 740 feet. And, displaced like 26,000 tons. So yeah, they're enormous. They're huge. I wonder if you could say a little bit more. I mean, the size of these ships is so interesting and the cargo that they're carrying is so interesting. Yeah, I was interested in hearing you say a little bit more about what kinds of ships we're talking about, you know, moving through the Great Lakes. Well, go back to the Welland Canal briefly. Because of the size limitation, they can hold the ships up to 740 feet in length. That's the maximum for the locks on the Welland Canal, and the beam or the width of a ship is 75 feet. In the United States fleets, there are a number of thousand-foot freighters that ply the Great Lakes. Because of their size restrictions, they can't leave Lake Erie for obvious reasons. They couldn't transit the Welland Canal. But at the Sioux Locks, which is essentially the, at the end of the St. Mary's River, where it connects Lake Superior to the lower lakes, like Michigan and Lake, Lake Huron, they can accommodate ships up to 1,000 feet long, 105 feet wide. Talked earlier about the bulk commodities. Those are key players in that, and particularly 
in the thousand footers, they're, they're capable of carrying like an enormous cargo pass, like 65,000 tons. I think, I think the largest cargo capacity ever carried on like maybe even close to 70,000 tons. And, and those, again, those are taconite or iron ore pellets or coal. And again, things are changing. And as, as we're starting to see coal plants idled, that's going to be probably a, a challenge for those major shippers that operate those thousand foot freighters. What will be next? But that that's the the maximum. You can get into some of the other things, Kurt, like tankers, which are becoming uh, they're much smaller in size, maybe four hundred foot overall length. They will come in from pretty much around the globe too to trade a place, particularly like Sarnia, Ontario, not far from where I am. So you're looking at basically between that maximum seven hundred forty foot Canadian vessel to the thousand foot maximum length U.S. flag vessels that pretty much are the the staples on the lakes today. Now, what about passenger ships? Do we still, or did we in the past, do a lot of pleasure cruising or just moving of people over the lakes via ship? Oh, of course. The, in the heyday, the halcyon days of the passenger trade on the Great Lakes, probably when a relic from, like, I would say, the 1850s through probably almost the advent of the automobile, I suppose, right around that period of time. So at times, like you could take Lake Michigan alone and you know, one of the early chapters I write about, there were up to 100 vessels plying Lake Michigan alone in the, the middle to late 1870s. And they'd come from all over, from Montreal and Ogdensburg, New York, to virtually all across, uh, virtually any Lake Michigan port on either side of the lake, or even at the southern end of Illinois and Indiana, all had passenger vessels. That, and also that package freight movement was always very strong. So and that wasn't just really restricted to Lake Michigan, of course. The early days of travel on Lake Superior and probably, man, at least in the late 1850s, where it was really starting to move, take off, if you can say that. But in the Lake Erie was always strong places. So yes, they were they were always the passenger business was enormous, even though railroads were around, but long before the automobile was invented, that was pretty much the, the way. And many of the things were luxurious as well. We're getting a good picture of the kinds of shipping that's going on, the kind of diversity of boats that's out there and the scale, you know, this I'm talking about thousand foot freighters hauling, you know, taconite ore or whatever. What kinds of dangers did these ships face when they set out onto the Great Lakes? Again, we've, we've taken it back to the, the days of wooden built ships and there were, the, the dangers were numerous. We used to start first and foremost, probably were fires. The combustible nature of wood certainly meant it that way. And it's particularly when the transition went from, from sailcraft to, to steam and boilers were, uh, they were cantankerous. They're often dangerous. Boiler explosions were all too common. So that was a, certainly a problematic many times. But by and large, it was well, collisions that long before the days of radar. Captains might be a little, I don't know, call them heavy weather sometimes. They may be a little not as cautious as they could be when it was hazy, foggy weather. Collisions were quite common. But usually the, the greatest tolls on ships has always been the, the catastrophic weather that can blow over the Great Lakes, the storms that can create just massive seas. They have been by far the most destructive means. When you say massive seas, what's a good measure of that? Like, How could you describe what a tempest in, say, Lake Superior could look like? I think that it's probably most people will concede that on the probably the most popular shipwreck that even if 
people are not really in tune to a lot of Great Lakes history, probably familiar with the Edmund Fitzgerald saga because it was relatively, uh, it was the most recent of disastrous losses on the Great Lakes. Even though it was 1975, like I said, it was a while ago now, but at the time when the Fitzgerald sank, and again, this is another 729-foot steel hold freighter, the waves were estimated that night to be somewhere in the 30 to 35-foot range. And Great Lakes waves are, that's probably a little bit different. They don't have the drawn-out swells of ocean waves. So it's a little bit different, but equally disruptive. That, that kind of water, that just the sheer amount of tonnage of water that can be put against the hull or over the deck of a ship is disastrous on so many occasions on the lakes. But in answer to the question, it was not a, probably not impossible to see 30-foot seas. And what kinds of like safety technologies did ships have to cope with these kinds of things, whether it was the fog and the ability to see other ships? I mean, obviously it changed over time, but I wonder if you could give us a little thumbnail history of how did the shipping industry try to cope with these dangers? Yeah. In the book, I tackle a couple of them, Kurt. I take a look at one was the, the, the use of wireless Marconi's Fabulous invention that we we come to know as radio. That was certainly one of the early great benefits, and it was kind of met with lukewarm at best. Sometimes it was even panned by by some vessel owners, but it probably grained more the most traction it would probably after the Titanic disaster in 1912. At least in the passenger lines, the benefits of having radio telegraphy was really it was is borne out by the Titanic disaster. Although it was enormous loss of life. It was a number of people also saved because I was able to get off those wireless messages. On the Great Lakes, it was um, it was really slow to come around. And even as late as 1929, when a couple of vessels went down on Lake Michigan, Carfer in Milwaukee, and this unorthodox freighter called the uh, Andesty, they both sank with loss of all hands. And neither cared where neither of them carried wireless or radio. And this is in as late as 1929. And another advent probably helped a great deal was that it took a long, long time for at least the American fleets of the Great Lakes to adapt a, a, a load line, essentially a mark on the side of the vessel would tell you how it could safely load a ship or how much where it could be safely loaded to. It was originally called the Plimsoll Mark. It wasn't in, in Great Britain, named after Samuel Plimsoll, who was this sort of rabble-rousing egalitarian guy that was uh, had this, the safety of British shipping in mind. And it took a long time for when he became a member of Parliament in 1867. It was still until uh, uh, 1876 before it would be compulsory on ships of the Great Britain that similar measure took until 1935, during the close of the Great Depression, before a load line was finally enacted on, on Great Lakes shipping. There's a couple examples of us as, as we sort of evolved and shipping got a little bit safer. But then, of course, things became much, much better with the, with the advent of radar, automatic direction finders, and things that are pretty much taken for granted. You could probably find out anyone has a, a good fishing boat today or took a while post-World War II for a lot of those things to become features on a lot of ships. It's pretty incredible to consider like back into the 19th century when in the book you say up until the the introduction of radio, most of the ships on the Great Lakes were communicating 
to the shore via passenger pigeon. <laughs> this, yeah. this real like danger and isolation being out there on the water. Uh, if something goes wrong and having no, you know, no one to call for help. Right. It, 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 it wasn't passenger pigeons. That was a carrier pigeon. Carrier pigeons. Carrier pigeons. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's pretty fascinating. That, but that was the, the means of communication. And they were used. And I think it's probably eventually one of the first, uh, another earlier company. I think it was a Pierre Marquette Railroad that operated out of Ludington, Michigan. They, they announced like in 1901 in Railroad Review Magazine that, you know, that they were finally going to be looking at wireless as they found that as a superior means of communication than, than the carrier pigeons doing some additional research. And I, I was finding that at the outbreak of the Spanish-American War that they were even looking at trying to allocate some 10,000 carrier pigeons to use to transport messages along the shorelines too. So it was, it was, it was, it was popular in other places besides just the Great Lakes, but it just goes to show you how not that long ago removed from the historical record that something that's used, it seems so, so primitive. Well, and I think another interesting thing about the, the safety and the, the role that technology plays, you're talking about the load line. And, and one thing that you didn't mention that's in the book is that, is it Plimsoll? Yes. That Plimsoll had developed that practice in opposition to shipping companies that would hyper load their ships and then just amp up their insurance um, on the understanding that like, well, it's a profit if it sinks because the insurance company will pay out. So there's this whole like ideology of capital that is making a safety measure uh, something to be resisted. They would refer to those things as coffin ships for that, for that dark moniker, because that's precisely what they would do. They would overload them and they knew they would go out dangerously overloaded, but they were also greatly overinsured. So it was a money-making scheme, or I should say a money-making scheme, but there was little accountability for black-hearted owner shippers that would send those vessels out like that. And when Plimsoll finally wrote this treatise on it about our seamen, that's sort of what turned the worm. He, the public favor uh, grew in, behind him in the movement, and he was instrumental in finally getting that load line in place on the British vessels. He became a hero. There are statues to him to this day, I'm sure, in Great Britain. And then and the mark is still the same on on, on ships that sail in from the war around the world today. It's called and even on a Canadian boat since there was a Plimsoll mark and it still is. You're listening to the MSU Press podcast. I'm here with Richard Gebhardt, author of Ships and Shipwrecks, Stories from the Great Lakes. So, Richard, we've been talking sort of abstractly about the, the shipping industry, the history of shipping on the Great Lakes, the tempests and the technology that ships employ to try to cope with some of that danger. I wonder if now we could turn to thinking about a couple of exemplary wrecks. I mean, I said in the intro that there are thousands of them. So we just picked a couple to talk about. And I wonder if we could approach that by telling the story of the Eastland. You don't focus much on the wreck of the Eastland in the book, but it's an interesting tale of the launch of a ship and its dark fate. Yeah, I'd be glad to discuss that a little bit. And I really feel this really, I don't know, this I don't know, it's sort of an unusual kinsmanship almost of the Eastland because I live fairly close to Port Huron, Michigan, where the where the ship was built by the Jenks Shipbuilding Company. So, and I'm in Port Huron a lot. So, I anytime I cross the Black River, heading see a friend up in Fort Gratiot, I I think about the Eastland all the time, and just because the place was construction, and I 
I frequently drive by the area where it was built, but for people that don't know, real briefly, that when, when the, the Eastland was this real sleek, real surly passenger vessel that was built for pretty much for the day excursion trade to run between St. Joe, Michigan, and Chicago. And it's, oh, man, it was just, it was really narrow beamed and it was really, it looked like a, I don't know, like a, if you were to take a wheel of cheese and, and, and slice a sharp, a piece of sharp cheddar cheese and look at it, it was just very narrow beamed and it was licensed to carry this ungodly amount of people, like 2,500 people on a day pass. It seems impossible they could ever get that many on board, but it was set up for a day excursion from the Western Electric Company's annual Ardung, and it was running from Chicago to uh, Michigan City, Indiana, with employees from the Western Electric Company. And it turned turtle in the Chicago River while it was being loaded for laden with passengers ready to take on this excursion. And it was the worst, became the worst disaster in Great Lakes Maritime history when it rolled over. And just within feet of the dock safety at Chicago, like 830 people drowned and all more ghastly because it was so close to the, I mean, just mere feet from safety. And the photos and images from the time of the recovery of the victims is really gut-wrenching. But Richard, what year was the Eastland? That was on July 24th of 19, 1915. And you said it was certified to carry some extraordinarily large number of passengers? Yeah, yeah like 2,500 it was licensed to carry, which seems incomprehensible, but it, it checked the records and it sure was. And, and I don't even know how people could have possibly moved about when they tried to shoehorn that many on board. But our records seem to indicate, or news for it, that's they tried to get that many people on board in that, that grim day in Chicago. But I was going to ask if we could dig into the tragedy just a little bit. One thing I'm curious about is you said that the ship was used for sort of day trips, you know, between ports in Michigan and ports in Illinois. How many of those was it running or had it run, you know, by the time it ultimately flipped? Sure. It was launched in May of 1903. And even that first year of operation, it was beset by not only labor troubles surrounding it, but certain maladies. It ran over a tugboat in the Chicago River and it had all kinds of problems. It's twin screwed, means it had two propellers, and it had issues with either ground, cable and ground into one of the bearings. And it was constantly beset by uh, maladies in its first year of operation. So by the time it, the, the catastrophe in Chicago is in its 12th year of operation, and incidentally, it went for, I believe it was four years when it operated out of Cleveland, between Cleveland to, I believe, the Cedar Point. It got off of Lake Michigan for a little while before it returned for the that horror day in 1915. And you said that that incident took place in the Chicago River. It did. It did. What? So what did that look like? Were they loading or unloading? And what was the logistics of it going over? Right. There were like there were three other vessels that were also loading nearby for the uh, for the outing for the Western Electric Company, but. It was, that was, they just went directly from dock to the gangplank, the, the boarding plank. And as they kept boarding, it was, eventually the ship started taking on a list. And it was just a matter of minutes before they couldn't correct it. And it went all the way over. And it was a horror beyond imagination. That's what did it in. And ultimately, they blamed it on improperly filled ballast tanks. And but even once it was tried in a, in a criminal court in Grand Rapids. And, Ultimately, what became of it, that no one really gained anything from it except for lost lives. The, the uh, ultimate value of the Eastern was slated for the value of no more than what the uh, this, the steel hull was, like a $15,000 value. So 
no one would really even compensate him for the loss of loved ones on it. Oh, it's such a tragedy. It was. And it's made all the more tragic by, it sounds like, I mean, just incompetence. Like they were, they were just overloading this vessel in the river and it ultimately tipped and, and folks drowned. It seems like an oversimplification, but really what it was, there are many, many images and photos from it, but I I warn anyone, those images will stay with you for a long time. It's, it was ghastly. It's hard to think about this kind of tragedy and to sort of know how to make sense of it. And there's also something about it. I lived in Minneapolis when the I-35 bridge collapsed. And I remember when it happened, just having this bizarre, like, you know, that it's a human problem. Like, you know, that it's people designed this bridge and people built this bridge and people failed to maintain this bridge. But it's such an enormous catastrophe that you don't see happening, you know, terribly often that it feels like an act of God. You know, it feels like some sort of chance occurrence that that's just inexplicable when it, when something like that happens. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and there, there's something truly haunting about the Eastland because so many of the people from the Czech Republic, Bohemia, many of the victims were. After the disaster, I think like 134 people were interred in the Bohemian National Cemetery. So they had to open up an entire new section of the cemetery to accommodate all the all the victims. And I went there a couple of years ago in January just to take, just, I just had to see this place. Not my closure with the Eastland, but I guess it sort of is too. And it's, it's very moving. And in 2015, they uh, established a a marker and a, a commemorate the disaster, the vintage ship's wheel and a presentation there. But one of the moving things to me was that in many of the markers and headstones and in the grave markers, they, they put these small like cameo-like pictures of some of the victims on these on their, on their grave markers. And it's eerily haunting. And even after all these years to go there and see it, it's just probably the darkest time ever in Great Lakes maritime history. I don't think anything else really comes close. Did it have any sort of political ramifications? You said there was a trial. Did did anything come of the tragedy in terms of regulation or anything? Not not really. I think that the, the greatest changes to to what, what was needed was uh, following the uh, the Titanic disaster, where there was a lack of lifeboats on many vessels, not only on the Great Lakes but worldwide. So. I think the greatest changes came after that, which is a few years before the disaster. But because the criminal trial was held in Grand Rapids, but everyone was exonerated. No one was found guilty of, of anything at all. And for those to try and make claims on any sort of lawsuit or any, any sort of potential payments, you know, it really came to virtually nothing because the entire worth of the uh, Eastland and, and anything incumbent upon it was like $15,000 for what the scrap value of the whole was so no one gained anything from it that's crazy and it's crazy to think that this is just one story among thousands of like enormous losses of life losses of property things that just go down into the great lakes and and reside now you know lost to memory or lost on the bottom of the lake yeah yeah and and this is probably the the the, the most pronounced or the one of the the, the greatest known other than the biggest storm of like 1913 or the Edmund Fitzgerald saga that are part of the popular lore of Great Lakes maritime history. To that point that what you just mentioned there, Kurt, I think maybe like a 
highlight one of the other chapters in the book called A Detestable Day on the Chicago Lakefront, further illustrate a couple of those things, like we're just, just the sheer number of vessels lost and over the years. But on just that one day, which was like May 18th of 1894, there were 11 vessels lost on Lake Michigan this day, 10 alone on the Chicago lakefront on a single day that resulted in losses like 22 lives. And, and a combined total of these vessels that all, all old wooden schooners that had combined for like 200 years of service, that all met their demise on the same day, on the same lake, in the same storm. So again, that's just another small example of just the enormous capacity of, of shipping and memories and cargoes and lore and all of those things that these amazing bodies of water hold. Well, and the precarity of it all too, right? Like you could have the, that combined, you know, number of years of service of, of, you know, relative safety, even the Eastland, like you, you mentioned some things that went wrong with it, but but it served for a fairly long time with, without a, a great tragedy. And then one big storm takes out all those ships and all those, all those lives and cargo with it. Indeed. One of the other vessels that I think we talked about earlier before we got on that podcast, there was the, the, uh, the bark red, white, and blue. And that thing was, uh, I say a bark is what it's, you can spell it like tree bark or B-A-R-Q-U-E. And what it refers to is that, the rigging on a sailing ship. And I should also point out too, that one thing without, without going overboard on nautical terms, we did supply or, or did put in a, a glossary of terms in the book too. So some of these things you're talking about barks or athwart ship or some of these things, there's at least a, an explanation or to, to some of the things that, that were written in the book that we'd be talking about now. But Going back to the red, white, and blue, this thing made it for 32 years on the Great Lakes, which is not exceptional for a sailing vessel, but it's pretty good. In its experiences and its life on the Great Lakes, it was part of the reason I wrote about it is because it went through so many mishaps and adventures. It was it was aground on the beaches. It ran aground several times on different islands. It was struck by lightning. It developed leaks. It was roughed up on Lake Erie a number of times. And before it finally wrecked on Whaleback Shoal in Green Bay, once and for all, it went through all these misadventures. And yet at the same time, for its entirely sailing clear, as far as my research that I found it, it, there was never once any serious injury or never a loss of life attached to it, despite all these misadventures and experiences and wild times. Well, it seems like the more I learn about shipping on the Great Lakes and, sh and shipping in general, nautical life, the more wild times and misadventures seem to be de rigueur, you know, like it's, that's, that's what shipping seems to be. You know, I'm thinking of the incident this summer with the great uh, evergreen freighter stuck in the Suez Canal. Like that seemed like such a, again, a kind of, you know, random occurrence, but actually like maybe that's par for the course in terms of what shipping is like. Sure. There's the richness of Great Lakes shipping history just has so many so many stories and so many sagas and sometimes odd, quirky things and majestic. It runs the whole gamut of fascinating and 
vibrantly colorful tales and ships and people. And the book, I hope, brings about or illustrates some, but there are so many more stories to get to. And uh, hopefully, what the appetite for folks to and en- en- enjoy some of these. And I like to think that, like, just the the pageantry and the and the magnificence and the history of these lakes is really as broad as the waters themselves. There are just so many fascinating things and stories and. Richard, I wonder if I could ask you about another story from the book. One of the, I mean, you do this fascinating thing where, where you're, as you say here, you're, you're telling the story of ships, but also of people and their place in history and all those things. Could you tell us a little bit about your research into Philo Parsons? Oh, I'd be glad to tell you that. Sure. Well, Philo Parsons, there was the ship, the Philo Parsons was a real small side wheel steamer that ran essentially between Detroit and Sandusky, Ohio, built in 1862. So we're talking about the Civil War years. Its namesake was a gentleman named Philo Parsons, who was a Detroit merchant, former banker. I think I wrote of him as being really sort of this Renaissance man. He helped encourage the purchase of Belle Isle, which is one of the great gems of the city of Detroit, or the, or the Hugh Moffat, who was the mayor there, who didn't want to do that. He helped raise all the funding for the uh, state fair when it came to Detroit. He was just a, a real a man about town. And well, this vessel was named for Philo Parsons, and it became fascinating because it was the only vessel ever pirated by Confederate forces on the Great Lakes during the Civil War. And it was a very zany plot that they wanted to uh, free these prisoners on Johnson's Island, which is a Confederate prison of war camp. And, Johnson's Island, Sandusky Bay. And it was a crazy, crazy plan that just completely fell apart and actually cost the life of one of the uh, pirates was hanged on the Governor's Island in New York after he was finally tracked down after the, the zany episode. But I discovered quite inadvertently that I didn't even know that Philo Parsons had any connection to Detroit until one day was driving through Elmwood Historic Cemetery in Detroit and inadvertently stumbled across his grave. And I was apoplectic. I didn't even know that the guy even existed. So that sort of set the mechanics of getting this story going. And um, it was pretty fascinating to me that he had been a former Detroiter. I wonder if we could just pick into the details a little bit about this Confederate raid. Uh, It was actually a Confederate prisoner's camp camp, uh, on Johnson's Island in Sandusky Bay. And what they wanted to do, Philo Parsons with a ship, they were going to try and reconnoiter it with the, the, the U.S. gunship Michigan, which was kind of lying in the bay there. It was the only armed warship on the Great Lakes at the time of the Civil War. They were hoping to reconnoiter with the, uh, the Michigan after another in the uh, Confederate cabal was going to try and waylay the crew of the, of the gunboat Michigan by drugging their champagne and it never worked. They realized what this guy was a charlatan and he was eventually arrested too. So the, this whole plan to come together to merge the final Parsons with a gunship Michigan, it was a miserable failure. And guys named John Yates Beale that had commandeered the Philo Parsons by the time he turned around and headed it back to Detroit, they they abandoned the ship in the Detroit River, and they fled off into the Canadian hinterlands, and the whole thing fell apart, and he was eventually captured and hanged. But the the, the Confederate war camp there on Johnson's Island was uh, a pretty interesting place to visit as well. I didn't know that there was one until I started digging into this Philo Parsons saga a little bit. 
You know, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about your research process. You mentioned that you, you know, discovered that Philo Parsons was an actual living person with a connection to Detroit in the cemetery there. You've mentioned, you know, visiting some locations uh, related to the works, to the ships and to the incidences in your book. Uh, How did you go about collecting these stories and digging into them? I was very fortunate when I was living in Lighthouse, as you opening the opening introduction, I was very fortunate as a young man to live in a White River Light Station lighthouses. And one day this guy came up to the, knocked on my door and his name was Edward N. Middleton. And Ed, I would come to learn before I befriended him, was one of the truly great marine historians of the Great Lakes, his forte, this was Great Lakes passenger ships. And when he knocked on the lighthouse door that day, it changed my life, everything that I that I would not be speaking to you now, Kurt, if it hadn't been for Ed. He was the one that illuminated the way for me. And I didn't know anything about any databases. I didn't know anything about who the people to be in contact were, whether it was Bob Lee at the old Dawson Museum. or I had no idea what newspaper microfilm was or how a reader worked. And Ed Middleton was the man who brought me those. He brought the frankincense and myrrh to me. I, he, he gave me the gifts. And even though the the research on this book is and the stories, sometimes they're, they're, there's decades between some of the stories, chapters in this book and to some of the more current ones that I just finished within the last year and a half. But all of it is really due to Ed Middleton. And he's the one that gave me the tools to do something I was always passionate and in love with. And that was Great Lakes Maritime History. And he was he sat me in a seat. I'll always be eternally grateful for him. And I do acknowledge him in the uh, in the book as well. But that would be my introduction to uh, to researching. And was it important to you to blend, you know, those research techniques, you know, looking at microfilm and and thinking about, you know, who's published on this stuff already with traveling to places and, and seeing the sites and meeting, you know, keepers of museums and those kinds of things. Sure. And some of the things, of course, you, you, you learn on your own and you're no experience like your own experience on some things. It, libraries have been a big part of that help too. And I, and at, I live closer to Detroit now. So there's the resources that the, the, um, the Kresge library at Wayne state and also the Detroit Public Library main branch and the Fine Burton Historical Collections; those things have been augmented to my uh, researching experiences. And and I had another real fascinating when I was living in Denver for nineteen eighties and into the middle nineteen nineties. And when I was working on some of these earlier chapters of the book, which I didn't know would ever come together in a book, I was able to get a civilian library card for the University of Colorado because of all the all the unseemly places they actually housed the the uh, US life saving service annual reports so i could actually check those out and take them home and that was probably a most uh, unseemly place to be able to do great lakes maritime research history boulder colorado but i got some done 
it's really interesting to hear that there's a bunch of Great Lakes maritime history stored out there in Denver, Colorado. I know that a lot of our listeners are going to be more local to Michigan um, in the Michigan region or with an interest in this region specifically. I wonder, Richard, if you could, in addition to your great book, which I encourage folks to get out there and pick up and, and read more you know, fascinating stories about Great Lakes shipping and shipwrecks on the Great Lakes, what would you suggest for people who can get out and about and visit places in Michigan? Where would you send them to encounter some of this history? Uh, I'll tell you what I would I would start with if you're within sound of my voice the uh, the Dawson Museum on, on Belle Isle in Detroit that that's hallowed grounds there by all means take that in the National Museum of the Great Lakes Toledo is superb. And when you're there, you can tour the 1911 built classic ore boat, the Colonel James N. Schoonmaker. It's tremendous. It's well worth your time and effort to do that. If you're in Muskegon, which is my old hometown, where I grew up in Muskegon and Muskegon Heights, and one of the chapters I write about the blue waters of the Juniata River, visit the Milwaukee Clipper. This is a fascinating vessel. It's really a, a floating time capsule spans eras and, and, and technologies on the Great Lakes and beyond, visit it. It's so worthwhile. Just north of Muskegon, 80 miles north, Manistee, Michigan, the, one of the former Grand Trunk Western car fares used to run across from Muskegon to Milwaukee in the railroad boxcar, rail car businesses. The city of Milwaukee is now a a birth and breakfast up in Manistee. And it is just, man, it's so cool. It, get yourself a room, spend the night. This thing is like, when you board this thing, it is cavernous hole because these car fares are built to transfer railroad cars across Lake Michigan. I think the capacity with City of Milwaukee, I don't know, 28 or 32 rail cars. So it's just enormous cavernous hole. There are rail tracks inside, but and when you go into this thing, into the, into the observation room and through the cab, it's all done in old oak. Things like period correct. It's like it's like stepping back into 1931 when it was built, and uh, the, the the people are gonna they're gonna be very accommodating. I heartily endorse that. It's really cool. If you're up in Superior, Wisconsin, take in the last of the whalebacks. In the book, we reference whalebacks on a few different occasions. They're a totally unique Great Lakes vessel. Well, there's one remaining, and it's the, the meteor, and you can tour this soul-surviving beast, and it's awesome to be on board. Couldn't recommend that high enough. And I would be remiss, of course, not to mention the White River Light Station, the Lighthouse Museum at Whitehall, Michigan. That's, that's where it all began for me, and uh, I, I, I'm probably not being real objective about that, but it's a uh, it's, it's pretty cool, cool tour to make. And that all sounds really great. It's giving me the itch to get out there and take in this history. It's been such a joy to talk to you, Richard, and to explore your book and to learn more of this fascinating history and, and what's hidden beneath the waves of the Great Lakes. So thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing about your book. Uh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. It's been a real pleasure. I enjoyed it very much, Kurt. Thank you. Richard Gebhardt's book, Ships and Shipwrecks, Stories from the Great Lakes, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Milb. 
The MSU Press Podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Michigan State University occupies the ancestral, traditional, and contemporary lands of the Anishinaabeg Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Odawa, and Potawatomi people. The university resides on land ceded in the 1819 Treaty of Saginaw. Thank you all so much for listening, and never give up on books.